Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Prior to the pandemic, I think we were kind of used to seeing uh, dollar strength here. Talking about the DXY index trading at or near that $99,100 level. It's since over the last several months pulled back to 93 to get a sense of where currencies are headed going forward. Uh, we love to chat with Dr. Wynn Thin, <clears throat> Global Head Currency Strategy for Blount Brothers, Harriman, based in New York City. Uh, Dr. Thin, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your sense of kind of the greenback here versus some of the major trading currencies here as we think about lower interest rates for longer, the pandemic impact, slower economic growth. How are you kind of positioning currencies right here? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Um, so, you know, if you do a uh, look at a chart, a weekly chart going back to about 2015, you'll see the dollar is pretty much within those ranges. Um, you know, just as recently as, uh, you know, March, April, we were at the t- you know, pretty much at the top of that range. So the speed of its decline has been has been noteworthy. Um, to me, it, it reflects two things. Uh, one is the aggressive Fed easing, uh, zero rates, and incredibly um, fast expansion of the balance sheet. Seventy percent year to date, the balance sheet has expanded. Uh, and now we've got some worries about reopening uh, um, here in Q3 with the virus numbers still so bad. So those two things have really worked against the dollar. To me, though, and I think I've mentioned this on on. Um, several times before, I still view this as, as a cyclical downturn. That is, um, you know, between the monetary policy cycle and the economic cycle, uh, the, the, the cycle, the cyclical factors are against the dollar. And, of course, you, you have a lot of experts out there saying this is a secular decline, but I think it's way too early to say that right now. I, I, I like, um, I think the dollar will weaken into going into Q4, but we could bottom in Q4 if the virus numbers uh, start to get better. Now, so, Dr. When, Thin, yep. go ahead, Vani. Well, I was just going to say, what does that mean for the other currencies? Is there going to be debasement around the globe, or, you know, what happens? Well, a couple of things. I think, um, you know, it, it, you can't have everyone have a weaker do- uh, currency, right? So, on the other side of the coin, weaker dollar means stronger currencies elsewhere. Now, right now, it's being expressed a lot um, in the currencies in Europe, uh, sterling and the euro, as well as emerging markets. So, at this point... Um, the officials in Europe aren't really complaining about the strong currency at this point. Um, they're seeing, you know, they're, remember, they're, they're a couple months ahead of us. They've been able to reopen, albeit, uh, you know, it's spotty and, you know, having to reverse from time to time. But they're a little bit further along in the economic cycle. So I think they can handle a bit of a cur- stronger currency. So, you know, in the long run, the dollar, the weaker dollar could help the, uh, the U.S. economy. But really, what I've been focusing on is really the loss of fiscal stimulus. You know, I've seen studies that say that you know, the, the um, enhanced employment benefits was pumping somewhere anywhere between $250 billion to a $1 trillion worth of stimulus in the economy. And that's pretty much fell off a cliff. Um, the sooner we get that started, the better. But that's why I'm, I'm a bit negative on, on the dollar in the U.S. economy in Q3. We, we have massive headwinds, really, um, between the virus and the, the loss of fiscal stimulus. So are you not uh, particularly optimistic that Congress will deliver a fourth round of stimulus? Well, I'll tell you, I, I was confident uh, a, a couple of weeks ago in August. I thought, okay, look, we've got an election coming out. Who wants to play these games? But both sides have dug in uh, much longer than I expected. So at this point, um, I think we'll know more over the weekend. I'm not sure if you've, if you've been following it, but uh, the House was called back for emergency sta- session to vote on um, uh, postal uh, 
service aid and protections. And I know that some of the in some of the people in um, Speaker Pelosi's caucus have been pushing her to, to use this opportunity to restart the talks. Uh, so you know it's, it's a fluid situation, but uh, you know my gut feeling is that they'll eventually get something passed, probably something watered down. Um, so again, another reason to be a little bit cautious about the U.S. economy. But um, you know this is not the time to be playing politics right now. When I've been curious for several weeks now about something slightly, you know, definitely not completely dollar related, and you used to cover emerging markets and frontier markets and so on. So I know you know all about mm-hmm. currencies in, for example, the Middle East, where we already had a bit of a dire situation before the Beirut explosion. I'm curious, how are all these countries managing, given that there is things to do with each one? that's making life more difficult and, and coronavirus across all of them. Yes. So it's funny you just asked. I just put out a piece uh, yesterday um, basically point, pointing out that, look, with zero rates everywhere, you know, you, no one has any cover. You know, you used to have, you know, if you know, Brazil had rates around 12%, that would give you a little bit of cover. You know, say, okay, well, I'm not crazy what's going on in Brazil, but I can get 12% yield, I'll go. Now we're almost all at zero or near zero rates. So we're back to square one where we're all focused on the fundamentals. Um, and so I think we're going to see continued differentiation across EM. Uh, you know, Brazil, South Africa, Turkey, th- those are all the high yields that used to sort of benefit and risk on, and they just haven't. Um, so my advice to emerging market investors is just do your homework. Um, you know, I think we're, we're past the worst, but, you know, we're, not, we're, we're past the stage where everyone's just buying EM willy-nilly. We're, we're, it's very differentiated. And I think that divergence can continue. But if, uh, I suppose, if you don't mind, though, just commenting on how these countries will survive this. So, yes, the opportunities for investors, maybe. But w- yeah. w- 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 are these countries all going to sort of experience famine and extreme poverty at this point? Well, that, that's the big question. Um, you know, I think that the, obviously the more developed economies are, 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 will be OK. You know, I'm not worried about what's going on. Uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, obviously Asia, much more, much better position. But yes, South, you know, I, I think Africa and parts of, um, you know, parts of South America are, are, are really struggling. I think that's why the IMF and World Bank have, have really been pretty much opened up the floodgates. So look, forget about, you know, conditionality. Um, forget about, you know, reforms. We're just giving you money to, to sort of get through this. Um, you know, for a lot of these countries, you know, especially in the Middle East, higher oil prices would be a, a big plus. Um, and, you know, they've stabilized, but, you know, I think there's still some concerns about the global economy. Uh, you know, I, I think China's doing okay, but, um, you know, there's still, it's, it's pretty clear that this is not going to be the, the classic V-shaped recovery. You know, we're, we're going to take like sort of, it's more like two steps forward, one step back. Um, and that's, that's, that's going to be tough. And I think, uh, you know, the weaker links in the EM are, are, are certainly going to suffer. Dr. Wynn, real quick, 30 seconds. Japan, how do you feel about the yen right here? Well, uh, Japan, economy-wise, it's, it's been one of the laggards. It's, it's actually even underperforming the U.S. And it's been very, very disappointing in, in Q3. They had to reimpose some lockdowns. But even before that, the, the recovery has been you know, very spotty. So I look for another um, slug of stimulus. You know, Abe's popularity has been uh, plummeting. So I think we'll get another slug of fiscal stimulus. Bank of Japan on hold. Given this um, sort of you know, risk-on, risk-off, and I think dollar yeah. yen has been having trouble really breaking above 106. So it's going to be probably stuck in this 104, 106 range for a while. Dr. Winthin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Winthin, Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, based in New York City. We always appreciate Vonnie getting his thoughts on currencies. 
Chris Liu served as Deputy Secretary of Labor during the Obama administration. He was a delegate to this week's Democratic Convention. He is now a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Chris, thanks for joining. So it was a very emotive speech. It was a very calm and I guess an effort at being uplifting type of speech. But what about policy? When do we hear what Joe Biden's policies are on everything from, you know, healthcare to schools to coronavirus? Well, I think you heard a lot last night uh, about how he would deal with the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And I think over the last uh, couple of weeks, he's been doing a series of policy addresses, not just on health care, but on the economy as well. You know, last night's speech, in my mind, was less about policy than about values. Uh, You know, his goal was the vice president's goal was to convey a positive message, a unifying message. You know, I think I thought he did a nice job of weaving in his own biography and how his biography shapes uh, the way that he looks at the country and he looks at government. So I do think you'll see more of those policy rollouts. But I candidly, you know, I don't know that this election is really going to turn on policy one way or another. All right, Chris. So if it's not necessarily going to turn on policy, what message do you think or what strategy do you expect uh, the Democrats, not just for the presidency, but up and down the ticket to really focus on this election season? Well, look, I mean, and this is not surprising when you've got an incumbent on the ballot. It really is a referendum on on Donald Trump. And what Democrats are aiming is using the coronavirus uh, crisis as an example of the failed leadership of this administration. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of other things they can point to both domestically and uh, and overseas. But that that's sort of what they're holding up as the prime example. You know, look, they, they will obviously have opportunities to contrast on things like health care, uh, where Democrats have a big political advantage, particularly with the Supreme Court considering the fate of the Affordable Care Act. But really, they're pointing this straight at Donald Trump and asking voters, uh, do you want four more years of him? How do you think that he did last night in the sense of appearing fully with it, young, vital, you know, and somebody that you could debate? You know, I, look, I, I, I've known uh, the vice president for over 10 years. I work closely with him in the White House, and I've seen him give a lot of speeches. You know, this was, hands down, the best speech I've seen him give. Um, mm-hmm. It was a different Joe Biden than I think people remember from 10 years ago. Uh, he's more mature. Uh, he's more calm. Uh, he's more of a statesman-like. Uh, you know, earlier in his uh, tenure, uh, the vice president did have a, you know, a tendency to kind of go off track a little bit. Uh, obviously, you know, in a prepared speech like this, um, it's easier to sort of stay focused. But, yeah, obviously a huge challenge is going to be uh, in the debates coming up starting in September. Hey, how about, Chris, as we think about down tickets, think about the Senate. What's the expectation um, about the Senate? Can the Democrats, they, did the Democrats feel that they can really take back the Senate? You know, I think they really do, and I think that was one of the overriding um, themes of the convention is to have really kind of a big ticket, uh, a big tent, which is why you saw everyone from, you know, John Kasich to Bernie Sanders and everyone in between coming together. And I think when you look at the kind of races that are being run in places like Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina, um, they're really kind of focused on the bread and butter issues, and not just healthcare, but, you know, the economy as well. And again, so I think, you know, having this big ticket approach at the top, I think, helps a lot of these um, down ticket uh, races, especially when you start to get into places like Iowa, uh, potentially Georgia, uh, Montana, which are, you know, reddish states. And I think having that big tent approach is going to be helpful to those Democratic candidates.
That said, Mitch McConnell will do everything in his power, and I mean everything in his power, to have that not happen. Will he be able to stop it, uh, you know, using any kind of strategy, do you think, Chris? Well, look, I mean, we all should be concerned about what's happening with the, the post office right now, and there are hearings going on today and Monday to look at what all of that means. You know, people need to come up with a strategy of how they're going to vote. I think broadly in terms of where Mitch McConnell is, yeah, I, obviously he will try to do anything, as will Democrats. But ultimately, these kind of elections tend to kind of go in waves. And, and ultimately, it's where the president's approval rating is and what people's perceptions of him are that I think will not only affect his race, but also the battle for that Senate and House as well. So, Chris, Kamala Harris, what's your take on the selection of the senator from California? Well, I think, first of all, she's supremely qualified. Uh, she has held, you know, not only federal, state, and local offices, but I think it's importantly to Biden. She provides an important jolt of enthusiasm, and you've seen that over the past 10 days with the Democratic base. Now, probably it doesn't ultimately translate into any more votes for the Biden-Harris ticket, but what it does do is get people who are like, you know what, I'll vote for Biden, but I may not, you know, write a check. I may not go out and... Uh, um, and help, you know, phone bank or text bank. And I think it will get a lot of people more energized. And I think that's the one area demographically where you saw Biden's uh, numbers kind of lagging. It's among uh, people of color, some younger voters. I think the Harris selection really helps him on both of those fronts. Chris, right now the president is obviously lagging in the polls. But as, I mean, as soon as we start to hear Biden speaking a lot again, you know, do you imagine that that gap will stay as wide? You know, it's hard to say. Um, you know, I don't think this is going to be a traditional uh, campaign season. I mean, I think um, what we've seen over the last couple of months, I think, is what we're going to see over the next couple of months. Uh, and I think that certainly, you know, makes it challenging for both of us to get their message out. I also think we're operating at a, at a time of such a polarized electorate right now. There really aren't that many undecided voters. And, you know, look at the margins. You know, what happens at the Republican convention, probably what happens in the debates will have some difference. But people forget, voting really starts pretty soon. You know, I live in the state of Virginia, and our voting starts on September 18th. And so a lot of these late developing um, uh, issues or, or, or events may not have an effect on a lot of people. Chris Liu, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective. Chris Liu, Senior Fellow uh, at the University of Virginia Miller Center, uh, also a former uh, member of, uh, former Deputy Secretary of Labor during the Obama administration as well. He was also a delegate to this week's uh, Democratic Convention. So obviously has just really deep knowledge there of what's going on within the uh, Democratic Party, Vani. But I think most Democrats feel like uh, they did a pretty good job this week. Absolutely. And uh, it'll be interesting to see the RNC next week after the virtual extravaganza that we saw this week. And it was really pretty well done. I mean, I think after a couple of small hiccups on Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday went pretty smoothly. And it must have been a huge technical exercise. Yeah, and it's, I was kind of amazed, you know, having, you know, how it went off so well from a technical perspective. So give them credit to the techs. Traders, what keeps them up at night? What keeps them wondering about this market? Well, let's ask somebody who studies them and is able to tell us with absolute scientific accuracy what exactly it is that motivates traders day by day these days. Randy Frederick is VP of Trading and Derivatives at the Schwab Center for Financial Research. More than 25 years experience in equity markets, but also... There is the, there's a Trader Pulse survey that the center puts out, and 
I'm very curious, Randy, what is it saying these days? The markets keep going up and yet, you know, everything is crumbling all around us. Well, the most recent survey data, which we just got back a couple of days ago, uh, follows a survey we did back in, in March and turns out that people have become more bullish, which uh, to some extent isn't terribly surprising. I mean, the S&P 500 has rebounded 51% since it bottomed on March 23rd. The NASDAQ is obviously doing even better than that. So what we find is that momentum in the market oftentimes does make people feel a little bit better. Uh, even though there may be a better buying opportunity when it's at the bottom, no one really knows that we're at the bottom until we're already past it. So, Randy, one of the things that you know, investors are asking themselves these days, and we hear a lot from fund managers, is you know, for the remainder of this year, perhaps going into 2021, if you can kind of figure on some kind of uh, other side of this pandemic, is how to play it. Do I stick with the growth stocks that have worked for me, or do I maybe rotate into value? What's your survey suggest? Well, sometimes people do that. I mean, the thing that's important to keep in mind is that we don't really know when or if we're going to get fully out of this. We, we hope and we have plenty of reason to believe that we'll probably have a vaccine at some point, maybe not until the beginning of next year. Um, and if that happens, of course, what has been the leader in the last bull market, which lasted over 11 years, as you know, um, will likely continue to be the leaders going forward. The one sector that is difficult to, or the one area that I think people need to be a little cautious about if they're trying to uh, position themselves for when we come out of the virus is those stocks that have benefited primarily because of it. Um, obviously, most people are staying at home. Many people are working at home. Our leisure activities have been curtailed dramatically, if not completely eliminated. And there are a number of stocks that have been benefited from that particular trend. While I do think that more people will probably work at home after the virus than they ever did previous to that, it's going to be nowhere near what we see right now. So some of those that have benefited greatly are likely to, to find a little bit of softness, but the ones that have been the leaders all along throughout the cyclical periods will likely continue to be uh, the leaders going forward once we get out of this. What sectors will be the most volatile, do traders think? Well, traders have told us that they believe the volatility is likely um, to get to be the most probably in financials, which is interesting. And part of the reason I think, obviously, financials have been um, the second worst performer year to date. And part of the reason for that is the fact that uh, interest rates are at zero. And as you recall, Jay Powell said, not only um, are we not raising rates, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. And of course, that means not only are rates going to be zero by the end of this year, they're likely to be zero by the end of next year, and perhaps even time after that. Financials, uh, for the most part, make a large portion of their revenue from the interest rate spread. And as the spread, as the rates go down and stay at or near zero, that spread between what they pay on balances and what they charge on loans gets compressed. And so there's just simply not the opportunity there. On the positive side, though, for financials, when markets are volatile, trade volumes tend to go up, and we have seen that uh, here recently. So, uh, But the interest rate spreads a bigger piece of it, and it affects a larger number of them. So that's the one they're most concerned about. And the second one um, is healthcare. Healthcare been a, um, has been the third best performer year to date. But healthcare always has uncertainty when we have an election. You saw a similar trend in healthcare prior to the 2016 election. There's a lot of discussion on both sides, uh, both from both candidates, about how they would like to change healthcare. And so it's, it creates a level of uncertainty. It's not so much that they're sure it's going to go down, 
It's that they're not sure what's going to happen. And that is actually the exact definition of volatility. We know it's going to move. We just don't know which direction. So, Randy, from your survey work, what's the economic backdrop that most traders are kind of thinking about right now? Well, I mean, we ask traders what they think the shape of the recovery will be, but sometimes that one's a little difficult to decipher. And the reason I say that is that people have a tendency to, to equate the market with the economy, and the two aren't the exact same thing. Even people at the high levels of government do that on a regular basis. I often remind people that the economy tends to run about six to 18 months behind the markets. Right. And you can see that regularly. When you think about back on March 23rd, most of the economic data was terrible. In fact, much of it hasn't even, hadn't even bottomed yet, and yet the market had turned around and began to move higher, and we're up, like I said, more than 50%. You can go back to 2009, and it was the same thing. In March of 2009, the market began to rebound. By the end of the year, it was up over 40%, but the economic data didn't recover until many months later. Some of it, even a couple of years later, we didn't see a bottom in the housing market till 2011. So it's a similar thing. So oftentimes when you ask people what they think about the economy, they actually give you their response of what they think about the markets. And that's partly because I can look at a chart of the S&P 500 and see a very distinctive V bottom on March 23rd. But I can't see that in economic data. I can see it in an individual economic report, but there's so many of them. Right. right. Think about the housing market. Think about the, the labor market. We know the labor market on, on a weekly basis has bottomed, but it's nowhere near where it was prior to the virus. And yep. the unemployment rates, on the other hand, which are very lagging indicators, we won't see a bottom on those for at least another month. Right. Hey, Randy, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting uh, this uh, information. Randy Frederick, Vice President of Trading and Derivatives for the Schwab Center for Financial Research, uh, calling in from Austin, Texas with that survey work on what traders are looking for, both in terms of the economic outlook and markets. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We welcome Timothy O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Tim, you're out with a fantastic column this morning, which I read first thing this morning. 23 questions for the Postmaster General. I'd love for you to kind of share with us kind of the real important ones that you think need to be asked at some point today. Uh, well, I mean, I think the most crucial thing to voters right now is, is did anyone in the federal government direct the Postmaster General Louis DeJoy to take steps that would have slowed down mail delivery um, uh, by intent. Um, now, DeJoy has said already in his testimony this morning that um, nothing he did was designed to slow down mail delivery. It was uh, just part of his efforts to streamline the post office, which he has said all along. But there's been a lot of contradictory statements also in his testimony, he said that um, you know he promised midweek that he would roll back some of these changes. Um, uh, one of the most significant is the removal or dismantling of big mail sorting machines. But then he said in his testimony this morning that he had no intention of putting those back. And yet later in his testimony, he said he actually had no idea how maintenance operations on those machines work anyway because it's handled regionally. So, um, you know, I, there's a House hearing today, or Senate hearing today, and a House hearing on Monday, I would hope members of Congress and the House will take some cues from the proceedings today to sharpen their questions on Monday. Yeah, as you write, Tim, the legitimacy of mail-in voting and the outcome of the presidential election hang in the balance. 
The thing is, you have this man, this postmaster general, a generous political donor, not just to President Trump, but also to other Republicans like Mitch McConnell, for example. How motivated will Republicans in the Senate committee and the House Oversight Committee be to actually figuring out what the truth is? Well, I mean, that's always the question in these hearings, Vani. Uh, the, the, you know, it's a Senate-led committee today. I mean, a re- rather a Republican-led Senate committee today, and they agreed to have the hearings, and it's a bipartisan hearing, and, and there are robust questions being asked. Um, uh, but as the, the, the main problem with these hearings is sometimes legislators would rather grandstand than just actually prosecute a case and ask a rapid-fire round of yes or no questions. Uh, I think for our business listeners, you know, for our listeners who care about the vote, I mentioned that asking about mail-in balloting is an important question. I think for our business listeners, uh, there's been another issue hanging over the Postal Service since the spring as to whether or not uh, Trump is attacking the post office and what it charges for package deliveries specifically to target companies like Amazon and other e-commerce companies that rely on the Postal Service to deliver packages. Um, there is no proof that, that uh, package delivery is a money loser for the USPS. In fact, it's one of their bright spots. It's a revenue builder, and, uh, and, and, and it's profitable. So they should just ask DeJoy about that and put that issue to rest because the wrong issues are being put into play about what needs to be done to fix the post office. And, Tim, there's probably a, a, I'm I'm not sure if it's a misperception, but a belief that the Postal Service is a kind of similar to a company, a corporation, that it should, in fact, generate a profit. But like other government services, the military, for example, it doesn't necessarily generate a profit, nor is it necessarily supposed to. How do we how should we think about that? Well, I suggested that um, the legislators ask uh, the Postmaster General Louis DeJoy um, if uh, it also is problematic that the military, public schools, police and fire fire departments, and the White House itself aren't profitable. Because it gets to some of the absurdity of this. We have institutions in our society that exist to provide a service that we support with taxpayer dollars, and in fact, the post office isn't even supported by taxpayer dollars. It's self-sustaining through the post uh, postage charges it, it levies. Uh, it, it's running a deficit, a massive one, and that needs to be fixed. But, um, you know, we, we have these things because they're common goods that we all share in, and it's a service that we all benefit from, including the Postal Service. And holding the operations of the military or the Postal Service you know, to the same accounting standards as a private entity is, is, can be very absurd. So, Tim, you know, you mentioned how package deliveries are actually profitable, it looks like, although we don't really have, I suppose, a full idea of the accounts. But people like Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, I mean, they must have a better idea than anybody what's going on at, at the Postal Service. Do you think they're in contact with the, the Postmaster General? Well, I mean, that's a real issue because the Bonnie, because the Postal Service is supposed to be independent. It, it exists within the executive branch, but it is overseen by a board of go- bipartisan board of governors, and it's meant to be in- independent from uh, political influence, m- very much in the same way as the Federal Reserve operates. And Mnuchin shouldn't be in touch with them, but we're in a moment right now. Mnuchin controls the purse strings. The CARES Act uh, allocated um, uh, uh, $10 billion in the spring uh, for the Postal Service that Mnuchin and Trump have refused to release to the Postal Service to shore up its operations in the midst of the damage from the pandemic that many institutions are facing. And so 
Mnuchin and Trump have leverage over this institution financially right now in an unusual way. And uh, the argument has been is that they're, they're using it to play politics. That's an argument I happen to agree with. All right. Well, we will follow the hearing today. Nathan Hager is listening to it as we speak. And of course, we'll be back on top of it on Monday as well. But this isn't over for sure. Tim O'Brien, thanks for joining us. We'd love to have got your thoughts on the DNC this week, the RNC next week and so on. But we'll have more time to do that. That is Timothy O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And once again, the Postmaster General appearing before a Senate Homeland Security Committee hearing today. He'll say or has said already that Congress is at fault for the agency's dire financial situation. Situation because lawmakers hadn't enacted changes that would allow the agency to get on a sustainable path. But of course, that's just really the beginning of what's going to be spoken of. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.